recently issued Pew Research Center survey reported that just 20% of adults in America trust the federal government to do the right thing. This worrisome skepticism predates the 2016 election and underscores a decline that has been occurring over the last decade or two. But as we will learn tonight, Americans are also beginning to lose trust in each other. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And thank you so much for joining us for our conversation this evening with Pete Buttigieg, AKA Mayor Pete. Published just this week, Trust America's Best Chance is a short and important examination about the forces, both domestic and foreign, that are systematically degrading trust in our institutions and in each other. Before we get started, let me remind all of you that you can purchase an additional copy or your first copy of Trust by going to interrobangbooks.com. And they always offer a 10% discount for our viewers. And all you need to do is type in DFW World. That 10% discount, however, is only good at the online store. I wanna thank our sponsors and partners, and they include our vice chairman, David Jacobs, and his wife, Cher. Additional support has been provided by Michael Holmes, Janice and Wes Lobering, Diane Lowe, and Hetty and Don Reynolds. And as you can look at the list of sponsors, it really makes a difference. If you'd like to support one of our programs at either the $500 or $1,000 level, just give me a call or contact Alana Buenrostro at the World Affairs Council. I also want to recognize and thank the Dallas County Democratic Party for being our co-presenter. Additional thanks to the Resource Center for their promotional support, as well as World Affairs Councils across the country, and especially New Hampshire and New Orleans. It is my pleasure to introduce Wally Brewster, who is a friend of Mayor Pete. Ambassador Brewster's appointment as the U.S. Ambassador to the Dominican Republic in 2013 made history when he became the first openly gay ambassador to ever serve the United States in the Western Hemisphere. Wally has been named one of Foreign Policy Magazine's top 100 global thinkers. And I'm proud to say that he is a director of our World Affairs Council here in Dallas-Fort Worth. Wally, looking forward to your introduction. Thank you, Jim. Good evening, Pete. How are you? Good evening. Great to be uh, reunited. Thanks for uh, doing this tonight. Well, it's great seeing you again. And even though it's virtual, it's great to welcome you back to Dallas. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I have the pleasure to tell you a little bit more about our guest tonight, Pete Buttigieg. Um, I think we've heard a lot about him and, and seen him, uh, but I'm going to give you a little more background. As you know, Pete was mayor of Indiana in South Bend, uh, Indiana from 2012 to 2020, and his bid for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination launched him into the national spotlight. Now he is one of the prominent young voices in the party calling for generational change with his candidacy, saying, we need more voices stepping up from a generation that has so much at stake in the decisions that are being made right now. Mayor Pete's run broke barriers as he's the first openly gay person to launch a major presidential campaign. He went on to impress voters across the country as he spoke at town halls and debates and ended his campaign in March after having won the Iowa caucus and tying the pledge delegates in New Hampshire. But he hasn't uh, just stopped there. He was a Rhodes Scholar. Pete received his education at Harvard and Oxford, both prior to and during his time as mayor. He served as an intelligence officer in the United States Navy Reserve, attaining the rank of Lieutenant. 
He was mobilized and deployed to Afghanistan in 2014. In April of this year, Pete launched When the Era, a political action committee committed to supporting down ballot candidates. He and his husband, Chaston, live in South Bend and have been hard at work writing their books and advocating on behalf of Joe Biden for president. His latest book, which we're talking about tonight, Trust, America's Best Chance, which we are here to discuss, is about the necessity of trust, personal, social, and political. It is an account of what has led our nation towards so much despair and how we can find our way back. So Mayor Pete, once again, welcome back to Dallas. And Jim, I'm gonna turn it over to you for this great discussion. Thank you so much, Wally. And I think I gave Pete, our producer, a heart attack because I said that Wally was moderating, but you and I are gonna have this conversation. So, um, you know, one of the things that struck me and of course, knowing your history and of course, hearing Wally again this evening was when you look at the things that you've accomplished, you speak eight foreign languages. And in fact, I'm so happy that you studied Arabic in Tunis, Tunisia. Our viewers know that Tunis is my second country and you're a Rhodes Scholar. You internshiped with one of our members, Ned Price at the Cohen Group, worked with John Kerry's campaign. Did you ever think about a career in the Foreign Service? You know, I, I did. First of all, thanks so much for uh, the chance to be here. And, and uh, uh, it, I'm seeing names who, who were joining us who made me feel so welcome on, on previous visits. And I, I feel the same thing virtually t tonight. So I'm, uh, I'm so thrilled. And, and thanks to the World Affairs uh, Council for, for hosting. Um, you know, when I was a student, I was much more interested in international affairs and, and then national politics uh, than anything else. And so it would, I think, come as a surprise to my 20-year-old self that uh, by the time I was 30, I, I was uh, fully absorbed in the local. Uh, but I've also come to believe that actually salvation will come from the local, uh, especially when it comes to some of our most challenging global issues. And a lot of that is uh, partly through the lens of trust that, that, that I've talked about in the book. Um, so many of the pathologies that seem to uh, make it difficult for us to get things done in our national political system, in our, uh, uh, in our international institutions, um, there are ways around that at the local level uh, because relationships are formed on a different basis and trust can arise in a different fashion. And I think much depends on our ability to take those instincts that we often hone at the local level or in our most intimate community involvements and find ways to, to uh, bring that out to, to the national level. Um, so I think about that a lot. I think there is a, uh, there's an alternate universe where I probably would have left it at the Foreign Service exam and, and had a chance to be in a diplomatic uh, career and uh, so admire the people who, uh, who do that. When I was uh, deployed, I was uh, in Kabul and in and out of the, of the embassy sometimes for, for my work because my commander was, uh, uh, was a civilian. And, uh, uh, you know, this is a time for the, the professionals in, in, in the Foreign Service uh, to, uh, you know, know that help is on the way uh, after what uh, so many people have been through, I think, especially in the last few years who, you know, idealistically were motivated to uh, be part of representing the United States, uh, not realizing just what they'd be asked to represent in, in this era. And we're going to get to some of that in a few minutes. We had George Friedman speak a few months ago about his new book, uh, Storm Before the Calm. And in a sense, he talks in the same way that you do about this decade is one that is extremely urgent. And you wrote, these years will either generate a vision for a new American social democracy or solidify the trajectory of an American decline. I wonder, 
in a sense, doesn't it, every generation? I mean, I remember talking to my parents about the Great Depression or World War II or the civil strife that we experienced in the 60s. Why do you feel that this is really different? Well, I think this is one of those moments that, that arises maybe once or twice a century. Uh, you know, I, I came of age just at the period that people were talking about the end of history, wondering whether the 90s was going to lead to a uh, just endlessly stable uh, state of affairs and improvement. And obviously, uh, history came came roaring back first with 9-11, uh, a financial crisis that, that uh, really shaped the experience of my generation in so many ways. Uh, now the Trump era, COVID, the summer of George Floyd and everything that's gone with it. I think it's just one of those moments where forces are converging and timelines that are not being set by politicians, but, but just by affairs are coming to a head. Uh, you look at climate and it's very clear from what the IPCC has to say that over the course of the next decade, we will either permanently fail uh, to head off the worst effects of climate change or rally together and do something about it just in the nick of time. When it comes to racial justice, this is a moment that I think uh, uh, Reverend Barber, uh, uh, who's somebody I, I pay close attention to with his Moral Mondays movement, has uh, been very wise in describing as a perhaps a third reconstruction. He talks about the first reconstruction after the Civil War. The second reconstruction is how he describes the, the civil rights period. Um, this is uh, perhaps the, the third moment in American history where there's a chance, and it could be our last and best chance, to decide whether uh, racism and racial injustice will finally wreck the American dream uh, or whether the American project will finally wrestle down and defeat uh, those kinds of forces. Uh, these things are going to be decided in the years we're living through right now. They're going to be decided by us, by the generations now living. Um, it makes it an exciting time, uh, if a painful one. Some friends uh, uh, have joked that uh, for my generation, this uh, experience of the last few years might be the universe punishing us for ever telling our parents that we envied them for coming of age in the 60s. Um, the, these things seem romantic after the fact. During the time, they, they seem painful and anguishing and tumultuous. And that's obviously where we are right now. But the other side of the coin, and I tell this to my students, uh, you know, it's not fair that, that they have to have their education disrupted by, by the season that we're in. But the other side of the coin is that they will be uh, guaranteed to be a consequential generation for, for better or for worse. One of the things I found so interesting about your book is that you did it really at the human level, person to person, institutions, and of course, how the world, how they see us. Um, you mentioned your military service and you open, I think it's the first chapter where you talk about, you know, perhaps not the most exciting thing, but driving a, a truck quite a bit in Kabul. Uh, from the zone, green zone over to the airport. But that really was an interesting story about how the word trust really came home to you. And I wonder if you might just uh, recount that story to our viewers. Sure, yeah. You know, when, when grappling with something as, as big and, and uh, complex a theme as, as social and political trust, I wanted to talk about it in, in ways that, that uh, uh, really resonated with, with experience and draw on my own experience to illustrate it. And one moment I think about a lot when I think about trust is, is a moment that happened relatively early in my deployment. Uh, on paper, I was a liaison officer and an intel guy. But as often happens in the military, you go wherever you're needed. And it turned out what they really needed was somebody who'd qualified on an M4 uh, to be a second body or a driver or a guard on vehicle movements. And so that was a big part of, of my job. And it was one of the first times that, that I was outside the wire taking uh, uh, someone uh, or picking somebody up at, at the airport. 
that I passed through what by Kabul standards was a typical uh, early morning commute traffic jam. Um, and then something happened that wasn't so typical, which is someone got out of his vehicle and started approaching mine. And I'd uh, been trained enough to know that when somebody approaches you, especially if they're anywhere near the wheel well of your, your vehicle, that's a popular place for a magnetically attached improvised explosive device to go. And uh, I knew that, that the Marine at my side and, and I and my vehicle might be in danger. But I was also trying to assess what, uh, uh, what to make of this person approaching the vehicle because uh, there was no good option. Staying in the vehicle is not a good option if you think it's under threat. Getting out is not a good option either, uh, especially in, a, uh, in the environment that, that, uh, that was going on out there. And, and leveling your weapon at a total stranger is something you would want to avoid, uh, of course, for, for many reasons. So I had a couple of seconds to decide whether to trust the good intentions of this person uh, or whether to, to jump out and raise my, raise my rifle and decided in the end to sit tight. Uh, found as he reached toward my, my wheel well that his, his purpose was to remove a piece of his car that had actually got wedged in mine, a little bit of fiberglass off his Corolla that in, again, the sort of classically Afghan experience of traffic, I hadn't even noticed that our cars were, were pressed up against each other uh, earlier as we were entering into this, uh, this intersection. Um, and I, I reflected that on that a lot. First of all, just thinking about what uh, might've gone wrong in that moment, uh, wondering whether I, there was anything rational that, that I could point to in my decision to trust him or whether I just guessed right. And over time, coming to realize how much of, of a risk he took trusting me uh, by approaching my vehicle, knowing uh, what that might mean when, when you're approaching a coalition uh, uniformed uh, armed service member. But the other set of reflections as I was preparing this book that came to mind was that that's a very dramatic example of the role of trust. But we actually trust people with our lives constantly. We do it thousands of times a day. And the, the normal functioning of society depends on us not even noticing most of the time. And a good example is anytime you're behind the wheel of a car and you go through a green light, your life literally depends on your ability to trust that somebody waiting at the red light is gonna follow the rules. And the vast, vast majority of the time they do. If for a moment you couldn't believe that, you couldn't uh, really navigate, uh, literally, physically navigate a city. And that's just one example uh, of how every movement, every transaction, every relationship, big and small, relies in, in ways we often don't even uh, consciously notice on the, uh, on the role of trust. And you know, that brings up, it's a good segue to what you talked about in 19, and, and this really struck me, 1958, 73% of Americans said they could trust the government in Washington to do what is right always or most of the time. In 2019, that number took a nosedive. I think people are going to be really surprised they were showing it. A nosedive to 19%. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. What does, you know, how, how do we get that back? 
Yeah, these numbers are alarming. And it's one of the reasons I uh, asked the Pew uh, Foundation for permission to republish uh, in its entirety uh, the, a recent report that they did as, as an appendix in the book. Uh, and you see it in the graphic that's been put up here. Uh, uh, in about 50 years, it went from the vast majority of Americans trusting uh, uh, government to uh, a slim minority. You'll notice a spike around 2001 that, that was directly attributed to 9-11. Uh, unfortunately, that higher level of trust fell away or was squandered, but it's a reminder that um, some disasters like the one we're in right now uh, and mass casualty events like the one America's living through uh, probably erode trust even further. Others can actually uh, create a moment where trust can be built uh, or, or reestablished. So what happened? Uh, you know, some of it, uh, we, we know a story, there's a well-worn narrative about how Vietnam and Watergate uh, really wrecked confidence in institutions like the military and, and like the White House that, that uh, we, we so relied on, especially in that period, uh, relatively fresh off the World War II experience um, that uh, was so reassuring about American institutions. But the more I looked at it, the more I found that that story was incomplete. First of all, the decline was already underway by the time Vietnam and Watergate happened. And also it, it actually accelerated in many ways afterwards. And so I began looking at some of the other reasons that we've lost trust. Uh, one is that uh, sometimes it came under deliberate attack, uh, both from overseas and, and sometimes domestically, uh, that there have been projects and, and one that I analyzed in the book uh, is maybe a lesser known flavor of Russian misinformation operations, which is around vaccines. Uh, there was a study in a journal of public health that looked at uh, tweets from Russian bots from about 2014 to 2017. So this is before, during, and after the 2016 election and uh, looked at the patterns of how they talked about vaccination. And what was so interesting was they wound up pushing not only anti-vaccine misinformation, but pro-vaccine information at the same time. And it revealed a strategy that was more about creating doubt and mistrust than about pushing any particular point of view. Uh, and so if you ever wonder whether trust is important, uh, one piece of evidence is how much effort our adversaries have put into undermining it. And the Russians have done this on vaccines, climate change, racial relations, many things. Exactly. Uh, matter of fact, they, they very cleverly exploited uh, existing fissures uh, around, uh, around race uh, to build up uh, sources of mistrust that obviously come from a very deep well of, of very real lived experience. Um, there are also some things that happen domestically. Of course, the evolution of our media environment. It was literally Walter Cronkite's sign-off to say that's the way it is. And one of the things that I found is the more information we're getting, as we do now on, on social media and digital media, that's a, there, there's, I think, an idea out there that this has kind of replaced the role of the reporter, uh, right? Everybody's a reporter because you, you can uh, be on the scene with your cell phone collecting video within moments. And in many ways, that's been very important. Uh, take look no further than, than uh, the fact that the world knows about what happened to George Floyd, uh, not because of a reporter, but uh, because of an individual who, who, who captured it. But this also means that the role of journalists, while it's changed, has actually grown in importance because we're being bombarded with so much information that we need help sorting through it. And that editorial function, that sorting function, that fact-checking function, I believe is actually more important today now that we have access to so much information that we're overloaded with it than it might have been before. Uh, I also found that sometimes both sideism, uh, media trying to do the right thing, uh, can lead to less trust because even when one side has been discredited, 
there's a sense of obligation to put them side by side. This definitely happened with climate change as the consensus in the scientific community approached 99%. Many uh, media outlets felt obliged to present it as 50-50. And then uh, the other thing, and maybe this is a bit more controversial, but the more I looked into this, the more I found there was an ideological project here in the US that had the result of undermining trust. Uh, in other words, what started out, I think, is a, a philosophical commitment among conservatives to having government be smaller led to a proactive effort to undermine the, the idea that government could possibly do any good at all. Uh, a good example of this is we, we all, uh, or many of us remember uh, President Reagan's uh, famous quip, the, the most dangerous thing, or the most frightening thing uh, you could hear in the English language is, I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help. What's less often remarked on is the fact that at the time he said that, he had been in charge of the federal government for years. So those who were in charge of leading uh, the, the institution were involved in making it seem less plausible that the institution could do good. And this became uh, over time, not just a, Dem a Republican uh, uh, rhetorical uh, strategy, but really something that anybody in politics felt obliged to do it was after Bill Clinton, who said the era of big government is over. And so there's been a, a, a tendency to uh, run against government, even when it's uh, people in government are seeking to, uh, to lead government. One last thing I'll point to, and that's the, the rise of inequality that has led to enormous suspicion of anything that might be called the establishment. And you know the idea of the establishment is pretty slippery. It's actually very hard to define what it is other than it's where you don't wanna be if you're running for office. That much is clear if you look at political rhetoric. But I think this is really fueled by the increased level of inequality uh, that has many sensing that somebody, and it's definitely not them, is making out unfairly uh, from all of the productivity and the innovation and the gains that the American people have made over the last half century, uh, leading to a kind of mistrust that led to a sort of populism that could have taken root on either side of the aisle, but has found, I think, its ultimate expression in Donald Trump. Well, I want to step away from your book just for a minute, and I'm holding a fly swatter because um, I watched the debate last night, and believe it or not, there's a fly that keeps on going between my lights here, but I know that you were the stand-in. Uh, is that true for, for Mike Pence? <laughs> yeah, and it is. I, and I wonder if you might just give us, a, there you go, a little flavor. <laughs> I, I could not arrange this any better. Could I? Give us a bit of flavor about what it was like doing that. What was the atmosphere? Well, uh, uh, you know, in the debate hall last night, the, the atmosphere was intense. I must have been the last person who didn't know about the fly because we were watching it on the stage and you couldn't make it out at the distance. It's Two like, minutes and five seconds. Oh, uh, yeah. When I got out and people were like, all they could talk about was this fly. And I'm thinking, what fly? And you know, what about what she said about the troops and what he said about the court? And, um, but, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was privileged to be, to be trusted with that role. And, uh, you know, Senator Harris is a, a, a phenomenal debater. And, and uh, so it wasn't about, uh, you know, I think prep wasn't so much about uh, whether she was a great debater. It was about making sure that, that you could anticipate the sorts of things he would do and he would say. And, uh, you know, having served uh, as mayor in Indiana when he was governor and, and watched him closely, I think uh, uh, I was asked because I, I knew him well to, uh, to play that role. And, um, you know, it's really more about the substance than it is doing an impression. But I've got to tell you, after uh, doing a lot of these prep sessions, I sometimes still find myself slipping into the cadence that I would try to uh, try to offer of, uh, uh, you know, him saying things like, uh, I, I really do believe that the broad-shouldered leadership of this president has po positioned America for four more years of great economic comeback. Um, you may have another vocation. 
<laughs> I don't think I'll quit my day. But let me ask you this. I mean, you know, the reviews today are that at least both candidates did not answer two or three questions. And clearly the one on the Supreme Court, packing the Supreme Court, Senator Harris did a relatively good job of skirting the issue. Aren't they going to have to come up with a, a, a better answer? Or well, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a strategic concern. Look, I, I've been outspoken on this issue, and, and, and my view remains the same, that there's a lot of uh, potential for structural reforms, not so much for so one side wins, but, but uh, actually uh, the reverse to depoliticize the court uh, so that we don't have a, an ideological death match in the Senate every time there's a vacancy. And there are a lot of interesting ideas on how to do it. Um, but I think the concern is that that, that kind of uh, becomes a distraction to some very real immediate issues that are in play right now in a matter of days. I mean, the, the, the Affordable Care Act, for example, is coming before the Supreme Court in a matter of weeks. And that has immediate uh, life and death consequences for uh, many people who stand to lose their coverage if the law is struck down. Um, uh, I, uh, it certainly got my attention on Monday when Justices Alito and Thomas uh, published a, a note uh, alongside the rejection of a, of a case that uh, between the lines made it pretty clear that they were interested in overturning uh, Obergefell, the, the uh, decision that by one vote uh, makes me a married man. Well, let, and, me, let me bring, oh, go ahead. Uh, all, all to say that, you know, the, the, the stakes of uh, the appointment that is underway, the decision that is about to be made, I think rightly belong in the center of this debate. Uh, even as other concerns are, are I think, going to be of interest to, uh, to people for years to come. Let me bring in uh, some of our audience questions. This is from Maria Zamet, who's uh, watching from Virginia Beach, and she's a fellow Maltese American who, uh, I guess she's correcting me, who knows how to pronounce your name correctly. Uh, yeah, classic Maltese. I did okay. <laughs> Do you think Democrats are prepared to handle the potential violence on or uh, on or post-election day, at the very least, especially in light of today's alarming event in Michigan, the very least we might expect is a serious voter intimidation. Um, and she goes on. What's your, yeah. what's your thought about that? Yeah, you know, alarming is the right word. I happen to be in Michigan at the moment. Chastin will be with uh, uh, Governor Whitmer uh, uh, soon for a, for a campaign event. And, and uh, you know, it's, we've clearly gone beyond just overheated rhetoric. Uh, there is real danger from extremist groups, mainly, though not exclusively, uh, on the political right. Uh, and uh, this is unfortunately being condoned or, or uh, sometimes stirred up by, by the President of the United States. And you don't have to use your too much imagination to connect the dots from a tweet that says liberate Michigan uh, to a movement that, that says that uh, being uh, asked to wear a mask is, a, uh, is an expression of tyranny uh, to uh, a bunch of uh, right-wing armed extremists uh, apparently hatching a plot uh, to uh, harm the governor of the state. And, uh, you know, this is just one that got caught. Uh, the FBI has, I think, correctly assessed that right-wing extremism uh, domestically presents one of the greatest uh, terror threats that, that we currently face. Um, as to what happens on election day, I've closely been following the work of the Transition Integrity Project. This is a bipartisan group uh, that uh, basically gamed out the same way we would do war games in the military uh, with people in, who'd had positions of responsibility in Republican and Democratic campaigns and transitions to think through all the things that might happen. And uh, they reached the conclusion that there is a pretty high risk of political violence in the event of a uh, strong Trump win 
a weak Trump win, a weak Biden uh, win as well, that, that a strong Biden win was the only scenario uh, where they, they assessed that it was less likely for this to happen. But anyway, you cut it. Uh, election day or even the resolution of all the elections won't be the end of the you know, churning, roiling uh, extremism and, and, and danger that we have in this country. And while we could point to all kinds of institutional reforms that might make a difference, all kinds of enforcement needs, as I proposed in my own campaign, to uh, help uh, uh, deal with, with domestic terror threats, the, the reality is a lot depends on leadership. A lot depends on voices from both sides of the aisle denouncing this, and a lot depends on the restraint of figures like the President of the United States. One vulnerability, a very soft underbelly in our democratic system, is just how much depends on the willingness of those who lose elections to concede the legitimacy of those elections. And it's a, a matter of grave concern that this president has already stated that uh, if he doesn't win, by definition, the election wasn't fair. Uh, we, we've seen ferocious politics, but we've not seen that kind of thing. And, and as you write in the book, one of the things is that Americans trust that the loser will concede and leave office. Right. It's, it's part of, you know, the, the whole election process could be thought of as an exchange of trust. Leaders trust us to decide uh, whether to hire or fire or replace or reelect them. Uh, we trust leaders to abide by the results of the elections. We also trust that the uh, ballots will be counted uh, fairly. And it's interesting, right, on the floor of the Senate, part of how we establish the credibility of votes of senators is that they have to state their vote in public. Uh, as citizens, we do the opposite. Part of how we establish the trustworthiness of our vote is that it's offered in private by that secret ballot. But that means a huge amount of trust goes into the process. Now, the reality is 99.9999% um, uh, of the time, uh, there, there's nothing uh, wrong or nefarious about the, the uh, counting uh, of the ballots or, or, or the process there. Uh, although this president and his allies have, have gone to a lot of efforts to reduce our level of confidence in that. What we have seen, though, systematically and frequently are efforts to discourage people from voting, to make it harder to register or to make it harder for a ballot to be accepted. And that kind of voter suppression, which uh, almost always happens along racially disparate lines, is something we've got to be very vigilant about. And I've been very encouraged by the efforts of groups like Fair Fight, which Stacey Abrams founded after her experience with the Georgia governor's election. Uh, also groups like Democracy Docket, uh, which has a dizzying number uh, of cases pending in court, uh, state and federal around the country, uh, to make sure that elections are free and fair and secure. Uh, that work's really going to matter on the front end. Uh, the last thing I just want to mention on this is we do need, I think, to do more work to prepare the public for the fact that we may not have the results we want on election day. And if you, uh, if you followed my Iowa campaign at all, you know that uh, I very much know how it feels uh, to want results on the day of the election and not get them. But in this case, with as many people voting uh, by mail uh, as we have in places like Pennsylvania, which as of now are not even allowed to open those mail-in ballots until election day uh, and start to count them, uh, if it takes a couple of days in some places, that could actually be an indication that people are doing their job with integrity, not a reason to discard the legitimacy of the process. Pete, take a moment and tell our viewers about how you first saw voter suppression. I, I, I believe that was in New Mexico when you were working on the Kerry campaign. Because I had, and we hear so much about voter suppression, Jim Crow laws and everything else uh, regarding Blacks, African Americans, peoples of color, but I had not thought of what was happening to Native Americans. 
Yeah, voter suppression sometimes takes more subtle forms. And uh, when I worked my first campaign job in uh, Arizona and New Mexico uh, for the Kerry campaign, uh, one of the things I learned about, first, it was first an eye-opener for me to learn that uh, uh, as a general rule, uh, Native Americans, uh, Indian country in the U.S., uh, is among the most reliable constituencies for the Democratic Party uh, in, in much the same way that uh, uh, the Black voters have been. And uh, perhaps because of that, uh, there were cases where a vehicle would appear um, uh, close to a polling place uh, on a reservation and uh, vehicle wouldn't have any labels on it. It might have a star or something vaguely uh, official looking and a couple of just intimidating dudes in suits uh, with sunglasses. Uh, at the beginning of the day. And pretty soon word would get around the community that somebody was checking who was going in and out. And even that was enough to substantially reduce the number of people who felt comfortable going in. And it's very important to understand this because when the president was on the debate stage last week and said, I'm telling my people to go and watch, I don't think he was calling for uh, a high degree of election integrity. I think he was calling for these forms of intimidation. And uh, it, it can be uh, it, it's not quite as explicit as what was seen in, in under Jim Crow laws, uh, but it is uh, having the same effect. And, and the really upsetting thing that I write about in the book is that anyone who engages in that tactics must not have a lot of trust in themselves, because what they're basically saying is that my only chance is to suppress these votes, not to compete for them. And anytime you have to write off an entire constituency, um, to me, that, that's a vote of low confidence in your own policies or your ability to, uh, to articulate them. And, and I just think that that couldn't be more opposite from the uh, politics at its best, which is to reach out to people and, and, and uh, engage, especially in constituencies that aren't automatically inclined to support you. It's one of the reasons I, I began my day today on, on Fox and Friends, uh, not a place where I expect to have a lot of ideological fellow travelers, but a chance to get a message out to people who are tuning in in good faith and might never hear what someone like me has to say unless I'm willing to go out there and, and, and say it to them. Lindsay Floyd has a question, and uh, Lindsay, you'll, you'll especially enjoy the book because Pete talks about this quite a bit, but the question is, can you speak about the role of forgiveness in forming and rebuilding trust and how have you practiced forgiveness in your own political career? Great question, Lindsay. And, and yeah, it's one I, I spent some time contemplating in the book because, uh, you know, trust matters because we're imperfect creatures. Uh, if we were perfectly reliable and predictable, trust wouldn't even make sense as a concept. We'd know exactly what to expect from them. Um, and, you know, many of the most important and interesting cases around the establishment uh, are, of trust are when it has to be repaired, when it's been damaged. Uh, and, you know, that's what we got to be thinking about right now. Um, there are institutional and even nationwide ways uh, that there have been efforts to do this. Truth and reconciliation models from South Africa to Rwanda to Canada. Uh, with Indigenous Peoples Day uh, coming up, people may not be as aware of the Canadian example where uh, they had a system of residential schools that really decimate, decimated Native communities and went through a, a process uh, of uh, truth telling. That is a reminder that these processes can uh, can work in North America too. Now, each of those processes was criticized and, and viewed uh, as, as as having issues, but each of them also made it possible to establish one of the most important things for trust to arise, which is just a shared reality, uh, and to allow people to tell their stories. And it's worth contemplating whether such uh, a model as uh, Barbara Lee has has proposed and other members of the House 
might make sense here in the US as we're dealing with issues of racial and economic injustice. Of course, often this plays out at a much more individual and personal level. And you know, our readiness to trust in someone's intentions, uh, even at, after or especially after they've acted in a way that, that, uh, that let us down, uh, is something that I think is, is vital for our ability to get through uh, what, what's ahead of us. It's certainly in part of any interpersonal relationship, especially marriages and close relationships, is that uh, we don't always get it right and we rely on one another for grace and, and forgiveness. Um, it's the very stuff of, of love uh, and of uh, the, the most, uh, I think, uh, strong, robust relationship. It's not that they've never been through trouble. It's that they've figured out how to negotiate that trouble. And we, we do well to learn how to do that, uh, not just with those closest to us in life, uh, but with people who uh, are in the same community or the same political body as us, but that we become alienated from. Uh, and if we can work that out, that, that's one of the keys to unlocking I think what we're going to need to for this decade to go well in America. There's been you know, considerable discussion about reparations. Do you see uh, how that might be structured? Because you're you know, not necessarily just talking about cash. What are some of the other ways that that might be affected? Yeah, I think the, the starting point for reparations is to understand that a lot of the racial inequities we live with are the result of policies. Uh, they didn't just arise. And that means it's going to take policies, and that means policies with resources to change them. Uh, our neighborhoods became segregated, often as a, as a side effect of uh, racist elements of New Deal housing policy that we progressives like to think of as a great thing. And it was a great thing, but it wasn't a great thing for everybody. Um, uh, similarly, with the way that things like the GI Bill and even Social Security were crafted in ways that excluded a lot of Americans of color. And so there has to be a material dimension to how we do this. Uh, and, uh, you know, the way I think of it is that, uh, you know, in the same way that savings compound, um, so do harms. Uh, if if uh, I were to put a dollar in, in a bank account today um, and leave it alone for 150 years, my descendants could take $1,000 out at 5% interest. That also means that if a dollar was stolen from from me, um, my descendants would be worse off to the tune of $1,000. Now, uh, any black American who's the descendant of, of slaves uh, descends from people who had a hell of a lot more than a dollar taken from them. And that's just one example of the generational theft that went on. But I think the most exciting thing about uh, if we got this right is that it could lead to a kind of healing uh, that might also uh, help with some of the changes that need to happen among white Americans. Uh, look, one of the things I read about in the book is that uh, conquering uh, systemic racism is not just a matter of beating back the likes of the KKK and the Proud Boys. Uh, that well-intentioned white Americans who don't uh, believe in racism uh, still have to go through a lot of change and a lot of reckoning in order to uh, get to the other side uh, of what we're going through right now. It can't be expected that people of color have to do all the work. It makes sense that they're leading, but they can't be expected to do all the work. But what are the concrete steps? Because you do talk about that in the book, and it's not just enough to say, I hear you. Right. Yeah. But what yeah, that's right. I mean, this is here is not just that it is sincere and that you're really making tangible progress. Right. So at a policy level, very material things can happen, including investments in HBCUs, uh, investments in uh, different patterns of de uh, desegregation for our schools. You know, I live in a school district that is notionally desegregated. Uh, it is by law, um, but only within its boundaries. And if you look at the way the boundaries are drawn, 
they, they serve to concentrate all of the racial diversity in our county into one district that's only part of the county. Uh, these things need attention as well. Uh, there need to be concrete investments in health equity uh, because for, you know, from the coronavirus to uh, other uh, conditions, uh, they are not experienced by members of decent, uh, different racial groups equally. And again, this might result from policy. If there's not been access to good food, uh, or if black people are more likely to live in a neighborhood that does not have good uh, trails and parks and opportunities for outdoor recreation, um, then the kind of uh, so-called behavioral or environmental effects on health, many of which get dangerously close to blaming the victim when it comes to diabetes or hypertension or, or these things, can actually be traced back to inequities that are partly the result of policy. We gotta change that, we gotta invest in that. Uh, we've got to be ready to invest in wealth building. Uh, a lot of ways to do that. One very interesting one is the a proposal that my friend and, and uh, a competitor in, in the field, Cory Booker, talked about. The idea of baby bonds, making sure that everybody gets an endowment uh, at birth, um, that they can, uh, they can grow and, and, uh, uh, and save and, and benefit from. Uh, we're going to have to put real resources behind this or it will continue to be uh, an inequity that could actually get worse, not better over time. So let's bring in again uh, some of our viewers. Um, and I'm sure you've been asked this question so many times, but I'm going to put a slightly different spin on what Luis Ramos asked. Should the Biden-Harris ticket win in November? Do you see yourself as a possible candidate for Secretary of State? You have said that you would be very excited to serve in the Biden administration. If you had your druthers, would you be more inclined to go domestic or more of a foreign policy position? So. Uh... Let me begin by saying, obviously, my, my efforts going into making sure there actually is a Biden-Harris administration. Uh, and of course, I'd love to return to public service. And, and the best answer, if a chance arises, is, is to uh, go where I can make myself most useful. Um, I am very excited about the possibilities for how America can restore credibility uh, on the issues that, that most matter here at home and around the world. And if there's one thing that the biggest challenges that we share both at home and around the world have in common, whether we're talking about the immediate uh, challenge of, of the pandemic uh, or whether we're talking about the uh, also immediate challenge of climate change, they depend on cooperation. And uh, the idea of, of helping restore that possibility of cooperation uh, and, and being part of, uh, of how America does that is, is, is really compelling. And uh, I'll, I'll be seeking to work on that, whether I'm inside or outside of an administration. Um, but the biggest thing I can do right now is make sure there actually is one. We spent uh, six, seven months in Afghanistan, and uh, one of our questioners says, do you think that it's okay, in quotes, for Donald, uh, President Donald Trump to announce a total pullout of Afghanistan? Uh, and he adds, of course, he talked to Fox this AM, but didn't tell his military generals. So obviously, another problematic way to announce a policy, if indeed there is a policy, you just don't know. I mean, as a general, when this president says, I will do this by X date, it usually doesn't happen. Uh, I hope and pray that we could be in a position to bring our troops home by the end of the year or uh, have the political solution that in a matter of months could mean that we can safely exit, bring everybody home and know that Afghanistan uh, will not be home to another chain of events that would harm Americans here on American soil. Um, but it's not clear that he's taken any step to make that more likely. And, you know, the, the idea that a, an important policy decision uh, that is also a very important strategic and military decision would be made and then announced by Twitter uh, in the middle of a vice presidential debate uh, by commander in chief who, to the best of our knowledge, is presently still on psychoactive steroid medication uh, is obviously not great news from the standpoint of our policymaking process. 
and something that uh, I'm really hoping we'll get a little more clarity on in the days ahead. Uh, John Seal asked, trust in Congress is perhaps the lowest. It cannot uh, seem to get things done. John, I'm not going to read your whole question because it's fairly long, but let me get down to the bottom of it. Uh, Congress has been, been unable to come up with another uh, coronavirus relief bill. What can be done to help Congress get things done? So part of what has to happen, I think, is uh, structural. Congress needs to be more representative and uh, districts are drawn in such a way that uh, not only benefit a certain party, uh, but also across the board tend to uh, incentivize polarization. Uh, it's why we need to look into redistricting reform, which exists in some states more than others. Uh, it's why other uh, approaches like uh, ranked choice voting and jungle primaries, uh, which again, uh, depending on your state, uh, some are further along than others in this, are very promising. Uh, because we, we need to have a representative body that's more representative. It also needs to be fully representative. It makes no sense to me that a U.S. citizen who pays taxes just like I do and has problems just like I do doesn't have a member of Congress just like I do if they happen to live in D.C. Uh, and I think for, for residents of D.C. and Puerto Rico, if they want it, we need to make sure that, that we have the, the full benefits and, and representation that a, a U.S. citizen can expect. I think that... Uh, you know, one interesting thing from a trust perspective is Americans almost always say that they have uh, much higher trust and confidence in their member of Congress than they do in the institution of Congress as a whole. And yet, what is Congress but, uh, but uh, a bunch of members of Congress? And so I think we also need to look at the kind of what uh, the system there is rewarding and what it's punishing. And I think most people, if they knew how their members of Congress spend most of their time, I'll tell you exactly how a member of Congress spends most of their time. They spend it across the street from the Capitol building in a small room in the DNC or the Republican equivalent. Uh, of course, I've only seen the inside of the Democrat version, um, making phone calls to people to ask for support, uh, for financial support. Uh, and that is something that uh, they might spend 10, 15, 20 or more hours a week doing. And imagine what they might be doing if they didn't have to do that. Uh, which is why we also need to be much more serious about campaign finance reform. Because if, if nothing else, leaving aside that they might be, I don't know, working on policy or engaging with constituents, they'd also be spending more time with each other uh, and, and doing it across the aisle. You know, it was viewed as a good government thing when uh, members began to form the hobbit, habit of uh, uh, flying home every weekend and, and, and not having their families in Washington. And, and there is a virtue to that in terms of being in touch with your district. But there's also a cost to that in the sense that they don't know each other and their kids don't know each other the way uh, it might have been uh, a couple of decades ago when if Congress was in, in session, you tended to stay in Washington. Three-day work week. Must be something. Although I, I wouldn't say it must be nice because, again, I don't envy that call time. I've, I've been there and it's uh, it's... it's uh, uh, it's alarming how much time and attention on the part of our members goes into it. Dialing for dollars. Let me combine these two companies. Uh, jo uh, questions. Joey Marquardt is uh, watching from Utah. Uh, what are your recommendations for everyday Democrats seeking to build trust with everyday Republicans in 2020? And Aubrey Yarborough, um, no, excuse me, Ava Markovsky, uh, how do we have respectful conversations with people who don't respect who we are women, Jew, Jewish uh, faith, um, LGBTQ, how do we make them feel respected and not immediately get defensive when they're literally discrediting who we are at our core? Yeah. Uh, I think communication. The prior question is a little easier to wrangle with than the latter one. The prior one, I think the solution is that everyday Democrats and Republicans are much more prepared to get along than uh, elected officials who are Democrats and Republicans. 
and one of the things I think is really important is for us to hold fast to those uh, circles of belonging that we have in our lives, whether it's a faith community or a neighborhood or a military unit or a, a civic organization that are bipartisan. Um, so that you know somebody as your friend or colleague or teammate first, and then as somebody from the other uh, party second. You have a much better chance of understanding where they're coming from that way. Unfortunately, our circles of belonging are often getting more and more concentric. Uh, in other words, if somebody is, uh, has a certain kind of education or lives in a certain uh, uh, community uh, or is a city dweller period uh, or has certain kind of basic social markers, you can almost predict what their politics are going to be. It's very dangerous uh, because we're supposed to try to mix up those identities. The latter question is tougher, but one thing that I learned from the LGBTQ experience, at least as we lived it in Indiana, going through uh, the disastrous uh, effort of the then governor, Mike Pence, to implement a law that would have uh, used religion as an excuse for discrimination, was I found that there was an opportunity to help people feel better about themselves as they were moving toward the right side of history in a way that wasn't always easy for them. And this is really important because I think there is a temptation. I mean, certainly I feel it. If I'm breaking bread with somebody who doesn't believe that my marriage ought to exist, um, that it's tough to, to see past that. And yet, there are a lot of people who I think if, if we back them into a corner and wag a finger at them and tell them they're bad, are gonna have nowhere to go but the arms of the least tolerant. And on the other hand, if we invite them in and let them know uh, why it is so important for us to be regarded uh, and live equally, um, it, it just is a whole different uh, way for their self-conception to work. One of, one of the things I write in the book is uh, uh, you know, racial defensiveness that, that I think all white people, all white progressives feel. Um, but I in particular noticed in speaking or trying to speak to white officers in, in, in my police, uh, city's police department about issues of systemic racism. Uh, uh, many of them were unable to even hear what I was talking about because immediately they shut down because they felt that the mere mention of it was assigning to them a character flaw rather than describing a phenomenon that all of us uh, are susceptible to. This happened again last night in the debate when uh, uh, Mike Pence talked about implicit bias as uh, he kind of accused Democrats of accusing police of bias. But the whole idea of implicit bias is, and the whole importance of training on implicit bias is to point out to people who are uh, not consciously identified with, with any kind of bias, how it gets into all of us, not as people who are secretly bad, but as human beings who have imbibed a kind of toxin that's going to have an effect on us and need to know about it so we can do something about it. Anything we can do to put people in a comfortable enough place that we can uh, pull down those walls of defensiveness gives us a much better chance of building the kind of tolerance and respect and support that we really need in a pluralistic society in order for everybody to be treated equally and have a chance to belong. Well, Pete, I have a feeling that Madeline Crouch is just chomping at the bit, hoping I'm going to read her comment, and I will, Madeline. Mayor Pete, music and musicians are a big part of my life. It seems to me that music has the power to bring people together like few things in the world. Here's my idea. When Congress is in session, open proceedings once a week with a short student music performance. When people are listening to music together for a moment, everyone is on the same page. Wonderful thought. We've got big problems to solve but we also desperately need uh, some feel-good time with each other after the last four years. I cannot believe that I have the fly. If my daughter, who can be quite devilish at times, if she were in the house, I would think that she put the fly in here. 
<laughs> There's going to be a dead fly after we finish. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's a sign of the times. Um, what a great thought. I think that is true. Look, that human beings have some capacities that are definitely not, not there's no political valence to our capacity for suffering or our capacity to experience beauty. And something as simple as that uh, could well uh, have a really powerful effect. We always, when I did a state of the city address, used to, used to do that. We'd invite a local, uh, uh, usually students, to, to do a performance. And you're right, that moment can just shake us out of some of the, uh, some of the, 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 the modes that we're in. And uh, it could be a very healthy thing. So in the book, you also talk about the Electoral College and many of your colleagues in the Democratic primaries talked about the need to abolish the Electoral College or reform it. There have been over 700 attempts to do so, none of them have been successful. What gives you any hope that there might be a, a, a successful uh, ratification amendment? Well, I think it's the increased level of uh, disparity between what the American people want and what's actually happening. Uh, you know, just about every major issue, the will of the American people is being thwarted. Uh, everything from levels of taxation for the wealthy to uh, a simple idea like uh, background checks uh, on uh, purchases of guns um, to uh, what needs to happen in terms of uh, infrastructure investment. Things that have like 70, 80, 90% things that Republicans and Democrats, not in Congress, but just in general, think ought to happen, still don't happen. And there are a lot of different features of a lot of different parts of our political system that do that. But the Electoral College is an example. When I was in high school studying the Electoral College, I always thought to myself, well, if someday it ever came to be the case that the American people voted one way, but the Electoral College voted another way, I'm sure that would be the last we ever heard of the Electoral College. It's happened twice since then. And uh, each time that happens, it, it undermines legitimacy in the entire system if we don't fix this. Now, there are a lot of powerful political incentives uh, uh, not to, although if um, uh, some of my friends who are working in Texas right now are successful and Texas becomes a blue state, maybe it'll be Republicans who are uh, uh, demanding that we do away with the Electoral College. I don't know. But this shouldn't be a partisan thing. And we could set it up in a way that it doesn't take effect for 10 years or so, so you don't know quite who benefits. What I know is that my vote in Indiana should count the same as your vote in Texas, and that ought to count the same as somebody's vote in New Hampshire or D.C., or California or uh, Nebraska. Um, it, it makes no sense to me that if you, if I ride my bike uh, six miles north of my house in South Bend across the Michigan state line, uh, I'm among people whose votes count differently than mine for president. And I think this is common sense. Uh, and I think there's a way to do it without a, con I think a constitutional amendment is the most robust and permanent way to do this. But there's a movement right now to one state at a time, uh, pass an agreement to a compact that says if enough states come on board, then all of those states commit that they'll pledge their uh, electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote. I think Colorado has been the most recent place to take this up. Uh, if enough states uh, ratify that, then that will have the same effect. And I do think that just the simple knowledge that your vote counts, whether you're in Texas or Indiana or California, uh, and that your vote counts the same as everybody else who lives in this country could do a lot of good to our basic ability to trust in the legitimacy of our presidential election. Pete, do you have a copy of your book with you? You know, I should, but I don't have one to hand. No, then I'm going to um, read, if I may, just a, a section of it and then ask the last question from one of our, our right. viewers. Trust isn't about perfection. It's not about certainty. Trust only arises, is only needed because we are so often less than credible beings. Trust in institutions is important precisely 
because we can't all be checking on them all the time. Trust in one another matters because we do not have the energy or the tools to be constantly verifying what others will do. Just wanted people to get a, a flavor of your style and how, how important this book is. Let's, let's end with this question from Dustin. Mayor Pete, you are the only political candidate that has actually excited me and given me hope for the future of the country. As one of the young future former Republicans you always talk about, I'd love to hear more about what it was that made you put yourself out there to try and move the country to the future generations. Thank you, Dustin. Well, first of all, Justin, thanks for getting involved and I, I hope you continue to be. Um, you know, the biggest thing for me was a, a kind of aha moment where I'd caught myself saying things like, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Uh, mostly in the context of my own city. Uh, why, why don't they uh, change the way downtown works? Why don't they bring more energy back to this community? Why don't they change the economic future of the city? And this light bulb moment where I realized that you can't sit around saying, why don't they? when the question could just as easily be expressed as why don't I? Why don't I do something about this? And in my case, that involved running for office. And for a lot of people, it should. But whether it's about running for office or being involved in some other way, voting, volunteering, uh, uh, being an activist, uh, writing an op-ed, um, choosing a course of study, um, choosing a career, whatever it is. I think when you hit, hit that moment that you realize that it might matter that it's you and not somebody else doing a certain thing then you have to go do it. And uh, you know, you'll either find that uh, you're alone and people don't agree with you, or you'll begin to find that there are followers uh, and, and maybe you'll find people you'd like to follow uh, who view things the same way and wanna be part of a we that says, why don't we do this? And then you know, whether you're leading the band or, or, or whether you're right in the middle of it, you have that sense of being part of the change that's supposed to happen instead of just throwing up your hands and being mad at it. And that, takes us, I think, from frustration to empowerment in a way that's going to be so important for how this decade's going to go and, and really for how the rest of our lives are going to go. Uh, as, as our conversation began, you know, we're living through one of these incredibly consequential times. And that means our lives are more consequential than, than, than is usually true in the sweep of history. Uh, well, so as I said at the beginning, this is a short book, but a powerful book. Thanks for writing it, Pete. Really, it's, I think it'll make a difference. And I encourage everyone to who've already had their book, read it this weekend. And for those who you've not, I hope you'll buy a book at Interabang Books or at your neighborhood bookstore. I hope that you'll consider supporting the World Affairs Council. You can always text the DFW World to 44321. Uh, have a great evening. Uh, Mayor Pete, continued good luck to you. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Honored to be with you.